1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode of the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Trapagan, an anthropologist and visiting professor at Wasada University in Tokyo. Today, my guest is author Jamie Green to talk about her recent and fabulous book, The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos, which was published by Hanover Square Press in uh, April of this year. Jamie, thank you for joining me on the STS channel. This is a fascinating exploration around what is a really difficult question, trying to define life in the ways that we sort of imprint our own notions of life onto the search for life on other worlds. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you so much for having me, John.
1: Yeah. Um, so I want to begin with a really straightforward question. How did you get interested in this? Um, how did you get into this question of what is life that shapes the book and and what motivated you to write the book?
0: Oh, man. I mean, I have been interested in this for longer than I can remember. You know, I, I grew up loving science, loving science fiction. Um, I first read Carl Sagan when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. That was, you know pretty transformative for me. So it's just, it's always been something that I'd loved, but I didn't study science in college. Um, I was a theater major, you know, I mm. did creative writing. So science was always something that I loved, you know, I was I was a, a writer and <laughs> for a little while an actor. Um, but then years later, I was in graduate school um, for creative writing and uh, for creative nonfiction. and we had to do a semester-long research project where mm-hmm. we would you know, spend the semester practicing library research methods and writing about some sort of research topic. And I wanted to write about the Voyager golden record. And at this point, I already had a tattoo from the golden record. Like I had loved it for a really long time. Um, and my professor said, go bigger, write about aliens. And I was like, well, that's, mm. that's a lot bigger. Um, but I did. And I also at the same time, took an undergrad um, class on exoplanets and astrobiology just sort of to get my feet under me scientifically. Mm-hmm. And I I loved it. I loved writing about it. I loved putting my sort of comfort with and enthusiasm for science into my work and, you know, really discovering that I could keep up with the science and keep learning about it. And so, you know, I've wanted to, that was probably 10 or 11 years ago. And I've wanted to write about it ever since then. But what happened was I had this idea of writing a book about the science of the search for life beyond Earth. Um, And then I would go to the bookstore, as many writers doing, you go to the shelf where your book is gonna be in the future and just sort of imagine it there. But there were already other books on this topic on the shelf, several Mm -hmm. of them and they were all written by scientists by like working professional astronomers so it took me a while to figure out what my version of the book was that would both mm. add to the conversation that was happening in publishing that would be publishable because it didn't already exist and it would be the book that i that was like mine and my version of it and it took a while for me to to land on this idea of approaching it Partly through the lens of sci-fi and looking at both the science and the science fiction as ways of getting at one question together, like two sides of the same coin, and that and mm-hmm. that just sort of opened things up for me. And that was when I realized, oh, this is the book that I really want to write, and that is the book that is like mine to write, and not anyone else's in the field of astronomy.
1: Yeah, that's that's uh, there are a lot of interesting things going on in what you just said. One of the things that does strike me though is the Uh, I've noticed the same thing, that that most of the books about this topic are written by scientists engaged in the search for life, you know, in astrobiology or in SETI or whatever. There hasn't been much written by people who come from fields, you know, like philosophy, theater, anthropology. There's more now, but um, there's really a limited amount written that actually come from fields that explore the questions of what is the meaning of life? What is, you know, why are, why do we exist and this kind of thing? Um, And I think that that brings another whole perspective that's important in your book. Actually, you bring up the Voyager records. Um, I have great problems with the Voyager record. Um, (laughs) And one of the problems I have with it is it's so staggeringly ethnocentric. It's a product of a tiny group of of white, uh, you know, intelligentsia from the 1970s. Um, and, you know, as one of the things that always strikes me is that if you look at the photographs on it, they all paint this rosy picture of, of life on earth. And, and I've sometimes thought, you know, if aliens did pick this thing up, figured it out and then said, wow, that place looks like a paradise. Let's check it out. <laughs> and then they showed up. They'd be like, whoa, you people are a bunch of liars. Your world is nothing like what you described. It, it fascinates yeah. me. There, there are no images of war poverty, nothing, disease, no images that would suggest anything negative happens here. And it it, it amazes me. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an incredibly aspirational project. But, yeah. um, you know, I and I'm not the first person to say this, but I feel very much like the Voyager record is a message much more for humanity than yes. for any aliens who might find it. That saying like, this is the version of ourselves that we you know, it's like getting dressed up for a date, you know, it's like you're putting out the best version of yourself. Um, and it's, it's meant to be a reflection of ourselves that it is aspirational and saying like, look, we, This is, we have all of this beauty and you know, it's whale song and the laughter of children. It's like, what if that could be the representation of us? I think it's really something that we could try to live up to. But I also think that the makers of the record would agree that it not only is constrained by cultural perspective, they did their best, but they know that it's limited they also had something like four months to make it. So (laughs) it's, you know, but it it does like connect to these really interesting, challenging questions of who can speak for earth. Yes. You know, um, something that people have asked me after the book has come out is like, well, what's our, what's the human plan for if we were to receive a signal? It's like, we don't have one. Mm -mm. I think it would really be a free for all of who would be responding and how. And I know that, you know, um, scientists and and anthropologists and philosophers have approached the u.n saying like we need a unified diplomatic plan but the u.n has has many pressing concerns so it it is definitely a challenge but it also reflects assumptions that we make about what we might you know in in terms of seti what we could hope to find from other worlds that we think about getting a message from another world. And we imagine that the other world would have a single unified culture and speak in a single voice rather than, you know, which I think gets to all sorts of ways that we idealize and project out, you know, the idea of a super advanced unified, peaceful extraterrestrial world. Um, Sorry, I'm going off in a lot of different directions. No,
1: that's a really interesting point. In fact, it, what has struck me many times is that that um, scientists, you know, astronomers in particular that work on this, they imagine the target of, of their messaging or what they might receive as coming from a world utterly unlike ours.
0: Mm-hmm. They, yeah. they
1: assume we can communicate, but their world is somehow unified. Scientists speak for their world. It's yeah. totally not like the world we live on. And it doesn't make any sense to me um, because it would be more likely that they will also come from a divided world. It may not be divided in the way ours is. It may not be divided around war and violence and this kind of thing. But one would imagine they will have, you know, a a complex of different um, ideas and thoughts about what it means to encounter other people. And that, that image just isn't there for some reason.
0: Yeah, and that's part of why I think it's so important to bring science fiction into, you know, into this conversation, because you do see that in science fiction. Um, In Mary Doria Russell's The Sparrow, there are, I mean, there are two species, but the humans who go to that planet land, and they meet some aliens, and they realize that they don't speak the same language as the transmission that was sent, you know, or Mm -hmm. in the works of Ursula Le Guin, there are... Alien worlds where one country wants to make contact with the the visitors who've come to the planet and another wants to stay, stay shut down and isolationist and navigating that and the political, like, we don't think about alien worlds as having politics or having right. different cultures and um, they would, <laughs> I think. Yes. I don't know. I mean, this is also making lots of assumptions that they are similar to us in biological evolutionary ecological ways which are also that's a whole nother foundation of of assumptions of similarity that we're working on
1: yeah i i mean i think um i think if we're going to communicate with them they're going to have to be some yeah. in some way like us it, it's just if they're so different we're just not going to be able to talk to each other and and that's fine um but if they are in some way like us then one seems to it seems reasonable to imagine that um they would have politics they would have culture they would have cultures um mm-hmm. actually think it's it's uh no surprise that i, I don't know if you're aware that uh Le Guin's father was an anthropologist yes yeah uh,
0: absolutely one of the most it, like
1: prominent shines of his generation. yes yeah. yeah and and you really see that she takes this care to think about the nature of culture and the complexity of culture and how that shapes how beings on another world might um behave yeah so uh, you know we we moved into this question of of science and science fiction, and could you could you tell us a bit about how you see the worlds of science and science fiction intertwining around this question of life? We've kind of touched on it, but maybe go into a little more depth on that
0: sure I mean, I think the in the most obvious way, I think that we're familiar with the idea that science and science fiction um do feed back and forth one into the other in terms of their ideas you know obviously Mm. when we're talking about technology science fiction is taking science taking technology and extending it out a few steps right whether it's extrapolating into new kinds of biology or advanced technology that's like what science fiction does and Mm -hmm. we're probably all familiar with um, the influence on science from science fiction ideas like um, rockets were first imagined in science fiction Mm. and then developed um dyson spheres the inspiration for those came from a science fiction novel right so science fiction takes things out a few more steps and sometimes the scientists say oh you know like the tricorders in star trek look just like Mm -hmm. flip phones um but i think that it's also really worth looking at not just the sort of practical technological imagining that sort of back and forth conversation but that there that science and science fiction, when we look at the question of life beyond earth are both imaginative projects obviously Mm -hmm. science fiction is imaginative but i do think that it's important to recognize how much creativity and imagination and speculation happens in science and Mm -hmm. i don't mean in an unscientific way i mean that um making a hypothesis is an act of imagination um thinking about what molecules or what test you might want to run on the surface of mars to detect possible life that's an act of imagination. And if we don't recognize that that's an imaginative act, if we think that we're just working with solid facts, then we risk losing sight of the human assumptions that are baked into those experiments or the earthly frameworks that we are just sort of projecting out onto other worlds. And, you know, sort of one of the core arguments of my book is that um, when we imagine life beyond Earth, we are working to understand life on earth more deeply. And I Mm -hmm. think that 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 also happens both in science and in science fiction, that um, whether it's understanding the origin of life or um, convergent evolution, what on earth had sort of had to be the way it is, what's random, and then also just understanding what it all means in a sort of, spiritual or existential sense Mm. both science and science fiction are engaged in that project and when we bring them together we can see all of it much more richly
1: yeah that's a it's a great observation I I have noticed on uh social media for example there there are many people Who don't really understand what science is or how it works. Mm -hmm. And they very much don't understand that it's not just a bunch of logical propositions. um, Yeah. That that it's this very creative, engaging kind of activity in which people are doing exactly what you said. They're imagining something and then asking, you know, okay, how do we get there to find out if that's the case? The the thing about science is powerful is that there's a strong openness to the answer being no, the imagination was wrong. That's not the way it is. Um, but I, I see this over and over in places like Twitter, where people seem to think that science is literally just a list of of logic propositions and that you can then counter them by pointing out the fallacy in something. And um, it's a it's a very poor understanding of what science does. I think your book does a fantastic job of bringing this together and showing how science is, in fact, this imaginative process, much like science fiction is.
0: Yeah. And I, I also think this is something that um the last like almost decade of politics and especially the pandemic have really highlighted that you hear people saying I believe science follow the science as if science is a monolith as if science is a set of answers and science is science isn't a compendium of knowledge it's a process it's an act it's it's the development of knowledge but that can only be done by moving through ignorance and embracing ignorance and not knowing Um, and the way we do that is by you know reconciling uh incongruous observations and imagining what might make them all makes sense. You know, it's, it's huge leaps of insight and imagination, but just the fact that science is a process rather than an entity, um, You know, and that's coming from people who would say that they love science and care about science and value science. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the pandemic really I mean, obviously, was a moment when we wanted answers and sureness. And the process of science was made so much more visible because we were all following along in real time in a way that doesn't usually happen.
1: Well, and I think because so many people don't understand how science works and that it is a process, they got very frustrated by yeah. things like, "Okay, wear masks." Okay, now you don't need to wear masks, and you know, and not the incapacity to kind of recognize that it's a process where we keep learning things, and that changes what we think we need to do. It isn't a set of answers, and I just I was struck throughout the pandemic how utterly poor the general public's understanding of what science is actually turned out to be. Uh, it's very disheartening in some ways.
0: Yeah, it was. It was. And like both from people, you know, from all sides of sort of um, various inclinations toward mm-hmm. political inclinations and how much that also, you know, colored our relationship to science. We're in a very, a very uh, tangled mess <laughs> of yes. of a situation in terms of politics and science right now. And But usually what's interesting is space science is often a place that people don't uh, carry their political baggage into Mm -hmm. they you know someone who might be very skeptical of the vaccine or whatever you know Mm -hmm. someone who who, you know might still love the JWST images might still be really into NASA um it's not as obviously politicized but Mm. um which is not to say, I mean, just the fact of the naming of the telescope, right? There is, we can't Mm -hmm. escape politics, but I think a lot of people do think of it as a less political realm because it is, it seems removed from humanity, but like what you were saying at the beginning about thinking about how other worlds, other civilizations would be just as complex as ours, just as, you know, multiple cultures and all of that. that really indicates our desire for space to be an apolitical realm and it Mm. just nothing is
1: right yeah and I actually think that that tendency is also a a product of of the the lack of understanding that science is a process and that the same process is happening in terms of looking into outer space as is happening in terms of looking at a vaccine it may be you know the specific tools being used may be different but the process is the same and So the fact that someone can be irritated about the lack of definitive (laughs) answers on vaccines, but okay with the lack of them on life on other worlds, shows that people don't really understand how science works.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's also, you know, just really separating science as the pursuit of knowledge from science as the pursuit of um, sort of practical applications when that separation just isn't as, doesn't exist.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to switch gears here a little <laughs> yeah. bit. I'm I'm going to ask you to do something that you may not want to do. I want you to define life for me. Since your book is about life, can you give me a definition of life and and what do you think maybe the boundaries are between what is and isn't alive and and why do we have so much trouble figuring that out?
0: You can't see it, but I'm grinning right now because this is okay. one of my my new favorite topics. Um mm-hmm. the impossibility of defining life. And this is something that i touch on in the book but have dug into more for for a piece that i've been writing since the book came out um and this is i think it's just one of my favorite ideas that i've encountered in my research where like historically it is it is like famously challenging to come up with a definition of life carl sagan wrote about that you know testing out all the possibilities and showing how any possible definition of life that we've come up with excludes some things that you want to include includes you know fire or crystals or automobiles um Mm -hmm. and nasa only has a working definition like they can even lock it down and what i've learned is this isn't because we haven't found the right definition yet it's because trying to define life is the wrong goal um and this is coming out of philosophy largely from for me i'm getting it from the work of carol cleland that uh definitions are for linguistic terms a definition tells us what a word means but it doesn't tell us what something is it doesn't tell us about the fundamentals of the universe and so the reason that we can't come up with a definition of life is because that's not actually what's going to help us Life, you know we don't care what the word means in english right we want to know what life fundamentally is. And that's not something that definitions do. That's what theories do. That's what scientific theories do. Um, And we don't have a theory of life the way that, you know, we have a theoretical understanding of gravity that from Newton and Einstein, you know, we understand that gravity is the curvature of space time. Or, um, you know, we have, I, I was just finished reading a book about plate tectonics. And that is, you know, a theoretical understanding of how the the crust moves and it explains all these observations and you can make further predictions from it we don't have that at all for life and and we're and that's you know so i don't know i don't have an answer for what life is because (laughs) because i'm not um a a scientist and no one has it so Mm -hmm. but i think that that's fascinating and that um there's there's this a new push coming from some some researchers saying like we need and and this is a challenge in astrobiology and it's a challenge in the study of the origin of life that we're trying to find something or determine a threshold for something that we don't know what it is we rely on we know it when we see it um and we think that that can extend into the scientific work but even though our intuition for life is fantastic. You know, it although then, you know, I say, what about viruses? And we realize Mm -hmm. that our intuition is not perfect, because we have gray areas that we can't that we we don't know, we you know, if I hold a flower and a rock, I can sort those. Um, But I just, I think it's a really interesting question. And it's one that um, these scientific fields that are looking for life have been sort of um, avoiding because it's a really hard question. But um, I think that facing that question would would open up not just better ways of finding life, but this fundamental understanding of the universe and of what life is that we don't have. You know, like Mm -hmm. physics doesn't quite explain life because life is so much more complex you know there it's just um so it's much harder than coming up with a theoretical understanding of physics which not that that was easy (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um yeah i just it's it's a really fascinating situation to me where um we've been sort of trying to skip over a hard question and just hoping Mm -hmm. that when we find life we'll recognize it but that requires life to either be familiar or so advanced that it's obviously not, you know, just some weird geochemical processes like geochemical, you know, weird, weird planets might make oxygen or might make methane in a way that looks lifelike to us, but they're not going to make rocket ships. They're not going to make uh, Dyson spheres. So, you know, that's one of the arguments for focusing on SETI because might be harder to find, but it would be more decisive. I don't know.
1: Right. Yeah. You, you actually, you pointed out something really interesting. You, you talked about English and the use of the word life. This <laughs> is something that I think people often don't recognize is that other languages don't necessarily construct that idea in the same way. So there is a word for to live in Japanese, but, um, the, the word to exist, there are two words, there's imasu and arimasu. And, um, they refer to inanimate and animate things that exist. So you use, you know, for a dog, you use imas, but for a rock, you use arimas. Mm -hmm. But for a corpse, you use arimas because it's no longer animate. So the way that they actually kind of parse the thinking about life is different. It's based on animation as opposed to um, is it alive or is it not alive? They have that concept as well. But you know, language is a powerful, powerful in shaping the way we come at these things. And but we have a tendency to think that the language that we work in is the way it is. Um And uh, people from other cultures, I, you know, I don't know if this issue of life is in fact an issue in many cultures. I have no idea, but it, it may be constructed quite differently depending upon where one's coming from.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there are cultures, called- as alive or a tree as sentient you know like we are Mm -hmm. absolutely projecting one set of cultural boundaries and understandings onto things and like there there are cultures where the line between life and not life doesn't even really exist right um and also if you go back hundreds or thousands of years you know animals were thought to be so much less alive than humans you know and Mm -hmm. have no internal life and we're sort of thought to be automata so like what yeah but it's it's but then on the other hand like well if we if we gotta figure out if we want to look for life on other worlds we do you know we we can't avoid cult or we can't escape these cultural frameworks but it is important to be aware of
1: them all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com/wonder yeah so let me um move to a, a another author i don't know if you've read his book uh, his name is edward ashford lee uh he wrote a book called the coevolution um and he argues in that that our definition of life is is just far too narrow and um mm-hmm in fact he makes the case that um, we're witnessing the emergence of a new form of life on our planet he calls it a techno species um and he argues that basically the things that we think of as machines are already alive and it's it's actually a very interesting point if i so i have uh, i have a couple of robot um vacuum cleaners in my house marvin <laughs> and um and um uh, oh hold on my <laughs> Uh, this is uh telling me that it's going to end us in 10 minutes so um so we may have to uh take a little break and come back but that's okay Okay. um but um uh you know my my robots um the one upstairs uh rosie she she approaches the stairs and then will uh back away well -hmm. does she have a sense of fear um not in the sense that humans do but what uh lee makes the point he makes is that well, they're based on a very different kind of architecture. They're not biological, so why would we assume that they would be intelligent and alive in the way that we're intelligent and alive? Yeah. It would be very difficult just for us to imagine that. And so, um, you have others like uh, roboticist Hans Moravec, which um, have argued that you know we're what we're doing in creating intelligent machines is generating the next phase of evolution, um, and that you know, he thinks I was at a conference many years ago in which he basically said, you know, they'll probably replace us. So I'm going to ask you, you know, what, what, what do you think of those ideas? Do you think AI is or may become alive? Um, Or is it is it part of the evolutionary process?
0: I I guess I just have to admit that I find myself pretty skeptical of a lot of that. Um, I think partly because it seems more driven by fear than by observation of what's happening in machine learning, no offense to your (laughs) robots, Um, or to you for thinking that they, they seem to be experiencing fear. But you know, uh, someone I interviewed for the book pointed out that the people who seem most afraid of the AI apocalypse, tend to be tech moguls. And it carries this feeling of they feel like the only thing that can replace them is the thing that they created which i Mm. thought was a very interesting observation um and there you know we we really haven't seen proof or even hints of what i think is like An equivalent of human intelligence in machines, and I don't mean in terms of the level of intelligence, but I mean the kind of intelligence, the sort of. um, Generalist being able to synthesize between different kinds of intelligence, you know, the machine, the the chat GPT can't generate images, you know, and can't generate. Anything Like, I I also think that we've really done ourselves a disservice in calling this current wave of tools, artificial intelligence, because they are machine learning algorithms, Mm -hmm. they are entirely reliant on human knowledge, they're, they're basically like fancy plagiarism programs and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we get spooked when chat GPT generates a sentence that isn't anywhere in its data But then when the image generators generate a hand with 11 fingers, which is not anywhere in its image data, we recognize that as a glitch. And I, you know, we get spooked by chat bots that we have programmed to speak in first person. Mm -hmm. Um, I would be much more spooked if ChatGPT started, you know, it's, 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 we, we're sort of it's sort of become a self-fulfilling prophecy where we call the things A.I. and then we say, oh, my gosh, there's artificial intelligence. Mm. Um, But I think we've just made like some some cool party tricks um, Mm. that are and and it's we're not it they're not seeming we're not just excited about them because we want there to be an A.I. apocalypse or because we want to be replaced or because we, you know, want to believe in them. There's also this whole engine behind it for capitalism, which we're seeing with the writer mm-hmm. strike right now. Like um ChatGPT is desire like the people who most want ChatGPT to work are the people who want who don't want to have to pay artists. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. like like it's it's all about um not having to pay workers overall. Mm-hmm. So that I mean that where my thoughts are right now just because we're in such a heightened moment with it but in the bigger picture you know is this the next level of evolution are we going to be replaced by machines um i do still have that skepticism about machine intelligence attaining the sort of complexity and synthesis abilities that human intelligence has you know i was Mm. i was in new york city Over the weekend and I was walking through Grand Central Terminal and it's just like Mm -hmm. this huge open space and people are walking in all different directions and we're all, you know, avoiding each other and no one's crashing into each other. And I remember reading a few years ago about how that is thanks to this very complicated system in the brain that, um, brings together vision and proprioception and social cues and and knowing where we're going and observing all of these tiny signals that other people's bodies give us about where they're walking and it's just like that is so complex and Mm -hmm. we you know something i hear very often from people who think that machines are going to replace us not in a fearful way but in just a this is the next step of evolution way is um you know machines can make smarter machines that, you know, every human baby is born with give or take the same potential and they learn over the course of their life and they become more intelligent and humanity as a whole may become more intelligent, but each iteration of humanity isn't smart of, of the human being isn't smarter. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think that at that machines could make Smarter predecessors.
1: Mm.
0: And I have no idea why. Like, why do we think that?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) It's just that I mean, talk about being influenced by science fiction. Mm -hmm. There's nothing we know about machines that suggests that they should be able to engineer progeny that is smarter than the creator, right? Like, it's it's just a guess.
1: It is a guess. I think maybe part of it is the tendency to sort of reduce intelligence to things like RAM. You know, exactly. okay, how much computing, computing power does power. it have? Yeah, and and yeah. I—that's a misunderstanding of what intelligence is. I, I, I personally don't see any real problem with that potentially emerging, but I think the I think the the way it's thought about it is basically just thinking of it in terms of computing power, and I I don't think that's what's going on. In, in a way, our brains are. I mean, I'm I'm a materialist, so I see our brains as just incredibly complex and powerful computers um but they also aren't just RAM and this is actually one of the things that that Lee uh points out he says that whatever intelligence in a machine is it's different from intelligence in a human being And, and also the experience of being alive in a machine would be different from that of a human but one of the things that I think he does that's fascinating is he drops the separation between the things humans make and nature Yeah. And that's a fascinating turn to take because that's an artificial boundary that we've created, Mm -hmm. particularly in the West. Um, But, you know, you see things like I I found a bird's nest in my backyard a while back and I picked it up. The floor of it was a sheet of plastic. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm.
1: The bird had figured out that would make a really good floor and used that technology to create that floor. Well, you know birds make nests? Why is why is it different that a bird makes a nest from a human making a building? Exactly. And and I think that's a problem in the way that we've approached this whole question of what life is and what intelligence is, we tend to assume that the things that humans build are somehow not like the things that other animals build. But you know, beavers build dams and houses. And why is that different? Um, so that that's kind of the question that he gets into.
0: Yeah, and I, I think also that sense of humans as being separate from nature and technology as being antithetical to nature, that's that's a, a big cultural problem for us as well. It's not just yes. in terms of science and the search for life. Like it's, I mean, that gets into climate change and how we yep. experience it as a kind of guilt and this kind of separation from nature. It really... Um, hampers our relationship with the rest of the world seeing ourselves as other and i think that's yeah. also connects to why we are so hungry to find other intelligent life in the cosmos is because mm-hmm. we think we're alone on earth we think right. that we're different from everything else but i think that there is so much learning about other life on earth to be done and so much more connected with the rest of nature that I think would just be like very healing for humanity in a lot of ways like mm-hmm. emotionally and societally and practically
1: so let's um let's move on to another question it's kind of related to this because there, there's a really interesting thing you get into later in the book when you note that there are these connections between western colonialism and how we think about other spacefaring beings and mm-hmm. and we tend to turn around, you, you make this point, that we turn around the colonizer, colonized ideas so that modern Euro-Americans are kind of put in the shoes of the colonized. And I, I was really curious, why do you think that theme has been so common? I think it's a really astute observation. And, and you know, why do you think that has tended to be so dominant?
0: I think um, for a few reasons. I think that in... I mean, we see it... <coughs> We see it in science fiction and in the ways that scientists talk about imagining life on other worlds like that is exactly why Stephen Hawking said he thought it was a bad idea to signal our presence Mm -hmm. to possible aliens, because he thought they were going to come and conquer us. And that is just um, assuming that the shape of history on Earth is what the shape of history elsewhere would be. And I think it's also an expression of guilt, like, Mm -hmm. you know, even, you know, being from the colonizing culture you're just afraid that someone else is going to come and colonize you. And, and you know, it goes back to War of the Worlds, which is explicitly mm-hmm. in reaction to Western colonization in Africa. And I think part of that is coming from a sort of guilt impulse, feeling like someone's going to come and do to you the bad things that you've done to others. I think it's also a political statement, a kind of, oh, Let's see how you like it. Like, I think that's a big part of what was going on in War of Mm -hmm. the Worlds. Um, And I think it's also for um, Western white authors, it's something from history that we want to process and think through and make sense of it's Mm -hmm. in some ways, especially going back, you know, to sort of the first wave of colonization and the it's hundreds of years ago, and it seems horrible and impossible. And so trying to imagine your way into it through fiction um, is a way of trying to make sense of it. That also happens for authors writing from the colonized perspective, like Mm -hmm. so much, much first con fiction from Africa is extremely informed by colonization, by neocolonialism um, and, you know, characters reflect on it. And it's like, well, this isn't the first time we've been colonized. You know, and they have a different mm-hmm. approach or they have a different perspective and reaction. And then in terms of science and what we're imagining, I think there's sort of two ways it goes. We imagine that advanced aliens will have transcended this Mm -hmm. petty conflict or we fear that they're perpetuating it and we you know can we imagine advancement that doesn't require subjugation of someone else Mm -hmm. that doesn't require colonization or conquest can we think of a way to spread a civilization throughout the galaxy that isn't Colonialist, like how do right. you spread and explore without um, replaying those patterns that we see in the human past? It also is a very, you know, just like we were talking about how our definition of or our desire to understand life is very informed by our particular cultural view. Um, when we say, or if someone says, um, you know history on earth is a matter of conquering and being conquered and first contact stories between cultures go like this. So they're going to go like that on other worlds. That's just one view of history. That's just one <laughs> view of culture and the idea that, you know, cultures grow by technology. That's hmm. just how one culture grew, you know, That's like right. there. And, and I think that um, just like we assume that another planet might be culturally uniform, we make the mistake of seeing Earth as now culturally uniform when it's really just that there is a dominant culture, but that doesn't mean that there aren't still other cultures and other ways of being existing. Yeah.
1: Even the concept of growth itself is is a very culturally framed concept. And in particular, in the West, it's related to capitalism. It's It's a particular view yeah. of what human societies do. But you can also have societies that don't grow and there's nothing wrong with that. It's different. Um, but there's been this perception in the West. I think that, that the societies must grow and that's cultural. That's not some inherent thing about the way the world is. Um, let's turn to this question. You raised the, the, you know, Hawking and and the, the issue of, of SETI and, and, you know, METI or messaging extraterrestrial mm-hmm. intelligence. Um, of course, there's been a lot of debate in the SETI community about active SETI um, and the potential dangers, you know, Hawking is a good example that, you know, if we keep sending out messages, you know, ET is going to pick it up and, and they're going to come and eat our brains. And, and so, (laughs) um, but you know, the part of the problem is, of course, we know absolutely nothing about life on other worlds. We don't even know if there is life on other worlds. And so do you think that lack of knowledge means that we should refrain from trying to make contact, um, you know, I was I'm curious about your thoughts on active SETI. And, and of course, uh, in my own work, I, uh, along with my uh, co-author, Ken Weijin, we, we've argued that there are actually some dangers even in just listening because of the geopolitical situation on our own planet. That message could be turn out to be rather dangerous. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on on what we should be doing in terms of trying to make contact
0: yeah, I'm I'm with you that I think the concerns are on earth rather than elsewhere. Um mm-hmm. and I I think it's it, it is important to contextualize that Stephen Hawking soundbite with the fact that it was like an off the cuff aside. It's not like he wrote yes. a paper being like, "No, we must not do this." Um but my very uh uninformed feeling about it is if there is an alien power out there with the ability to come get us and kill us then they already know that we're here like that is such a technological advancement that like it's not like we need to be like hello (laughs) barely advanced civilization here and they're like oh let me get in my speed of light starships and come murder you all and also like what do they need from us if they are just you know there's this trope we see in sci-fi of the sort of like um devouring murderous race that mm-hmm. sometimes has like a religious fanaticism vibe where they're just trying to eradicate all of other life in the galaxy. Um, I don't know. I feel like sending a transmission, first of all, what are the odds that they're going to get it? But like, if they yep. could get it and find us and kill us, they know we're here. Like we're, um, cause they would have to be so advanced for any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't particularly feel worried about Medi for danger from out there reasons. It's more, I think it comes back to the question of like, who has the right to speak for earth? Is this a yeah. diplomatic project or, but like, what's the harm? It's more that I think some of it mm-hmm. is kind you know, I, I see some of some Medi work looking a lot more like art projects than mm. communication missions. Like even the Arecibo message was mm-hmm. aimed at a, another galaxy because it was about showing off the power of the transmitter rather than actually trying to to reach anyone. Yeah. So it's sort of like the golden record, where it's more for us than for them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's more to say like we are a planet trying to make contact with other planets. It's a hopeful gesture. It can be a beautiful gesture. Sometimes it's like a cool conceptual art gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I think the it has more geopolitical you know earth questions of who has the right to do that yeah. is it that everyone does is it that no one does because we're not a unified planet so why would we send a unified message um but I, yeah and and you know for seti sorry i have this awful cough one second no. That's what I keep muting myself for. Um, Okay. (laughs) As for SETI, yeah, I mean, it was really interesting working on my book when I would talk to SETI researchers and ask them, what do they think would happen if we received a message? There's a big generational split, I think, where Mm -hmm. that sort of first generation of SETI pioneers like Carl Sagan, Frank Drake, Jill Tarter, Andrea, and like, Jill Tarter says that she thinks that finding proof of life elsewhere would inspire humanity to unite. Um, you know, we would realize we have so much, we're not so different after all. Um, in contact, Carl Sagan writes about the receipt of a message from another world inspiring, you know, big spiritual upheavals, um, basically triggering nuclear disarmament. And then I talked to, um, andrew simeon who runs the SETI project at berkeley who i think of as like being not just age-wise but also he's he's in this much more just looking for signals not trying to make contact not having these sort of spiritual aspirational hopes he says Mm -hmm. he doesn't really think much would happen that Mm -hmm. like there's so much going on on earth that it might it would be cool but he doesn't think that it would have a big change on society on earth because also practically there's not really much hope of communication um, right. unless they are extremely close by and extremely similar to us. And we are extremely united in response. Like it's it's gonna be like trying to be pen pals across the centuries. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think we're much more likely to just find out the fact of another civilization's mm-hmm. existence than be able to get much information from them. Um, And then there's also the fact that a lot of humans already think we've found life on other worlds, whether that's UFOs or or just misunderstanding, you know, big headlines about whatever's going on on Mars or Mm -hmm. seeing the headline about we found a possible something and then not seeing the much smaller headlines about no, never mind, it wasn't there. So then the last thing I think about in terms of this question is that there have been so many times in Re- relatively recent human history when we have thought yeah. there was life on other worlds, yep. you know, yep. up until the Viking lander, I think lots of scientists thought there was going to be life on Mars mm-hmm. in the early 1900s. People thought there were canals on Mars and, yeah. you know, th- from the Renaissance for centuries, people just took it for granted that there was life on other worlds, that if mm-hmm. there are planets like earth and they're made of the same stuff as earth, why wouldn't there be life there? It was yep. just assumed. And that didn't affect human society that much at all. So that's, you know, that's a- another bit of evidence that we have where we can actually see moments in the past where either we thought there was a discovery or we just took it for granted and we just kept going about our, our business, fighting wars and hating people mm-hmm. and poverty, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. I, I think one of the things that the the more idealistic perspectives on this miss is that 80% of the world still basically lives on less than $10 a day and it doesn't matter to most of those people they're yeah. trying to figure out how to survive and so it is i think it's highly unlikely to be a world changing event it will change the perspectives of uh intellectual elites maybe some politicians mm-hmm. maybe some business people and over time it may have an effect on us but you know I'm, i always think back to the moon landing people said well this will change the way we see ourselves yeah for about 15 no. minutes yeah <laughs> <laughs> it didn't last long and and so i i think that's uh i think it's something of a conceit on the perspective of of what that generation of SETI scholars thought they were doing yes. um i think it tends to be a a, a sort of a grandiose over uh, sort of almost dramatization of what they were doing and not to say that it isn't interesting, but I don't think it's as profoundly important as many of them have described it as being. Um,
0: Yeah, I actually wonder if this is a place where there's another parallel with the study of the origin of life, where that's Mm. a fascinating field to me, pursuing a huge question that no one knows about or cares about. Like a lot of Lay people, I think we just assume that we know how life began on earth. Yes. For someone in the field, it is a huge open question. It's a contentious field. It's getting at these extremely fundamental questions and no one outside of it cares.
1: (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. Yep.
0: And I love that field. I care. Mm -hmm. I'm outside that field and I care. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it would be just maybe a couple steps bigger than that.
1: Right. Yeah. So... This has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to raise for our listeners?
0: I don't think so. No, I've I've loved talking to you about all of this.
1: Well, me too. This has been great. So so tell us what's up next. What are you working on now and what are you thinking about for the future?
0: Um, I am really I am really consumed with ideas about the origin of life, Mm -hmm. ideas about looking for a theory of life. for the implications for astrobiology, but also I just think the study of the origin of life is fascinating because mm-hmm. s- sort of similar to astrobiology, but even more, it's a question that we're probably never going to answer. Mm-hmm. And even if we figure out how life might have started or how life might start in general, we'll never know how it historically happened on earth. Um, right. And I think that that sort of impossible scientific question is really interesting to me both for the like personal quest of the researchers working on it but also just it's such a big question and there is an answer and we can't get it and i just think that's really interesting and also working on this book you know i had been following and writing about Astronomy and astrobiology for over a decade, but I—the book includes a lot of biology, a lot of evolutionary biology and mm-hmm. <clears throat> cellular biology and biochemistry in terms of origin of life, and that all was pretty new to me researching mm-hmm. the book, and so I feel like um, it opened up some new interests for me, just sort of as a writer and a person. You know, I think I got the astronomy and SETI stuff out of my system. I still love it. But I've mm-hmm. I've written my book now, um, yep. so I'm excited to figure out what what directions I go in next.
1: Well, I'm certainly looking forward to uh, reading whatever you um, come up with next. I, I I have to say that I think the Possibility of Life is just a, a superb book. I I really encourage people to read it. It is both readable and yet there's just an enormous amount of information, a really, you know, deep rendering of the question. And so I, I think it's a just a wonderful contribution. Um, so I want to thank you again for, you know, joining me on the Science, Technology and Society channel. And uh, it's really been a pleasure talking with you, Jamie. What a fantastic book.
0: Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it.